This morning's text will be the short but significant book of Philemon. You can turn there now, and we'll begin our time of study by reading all 25 verses of Philemon. As you turn there, I'll invite you to stand with me, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Philemon, verses 1 through 25. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant or slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we approach the book of Philemon and we look at the words of Paul, 
some thousands of years old, we know that these words can speak to us today. We pray that you would make your book live to us, that we would see in it our Savior, that we would see in it ourselves and our need for a Savior, and that you would instruct and guide us, bless us through these words. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. In our high school Sunday school, we've spent the last three months going through verse by verse this book of Philemon and finding it interesting, edifying, and also rather neglected. I've decided for our time in God's word this morning to cover the entire book. That's 25 verses. That's above average. (laughs) The sermon insert in your bulletin is essentially an outline of the book. And though we won't be able to go through every detail in depth, I do hope to cover every verse in the book and uncover the flow of Paul's message in this very unique epistle. I trust you'll be strengthened, challenged, and encouraged by what God has spoken through these words. It can be tempting to overlook books of the Bible as short as Philemon. Philemon is the shortest of Paul's epistles, but it carries the same inspiration and authority as a book like Romans or Galatians, and it provides very personal insight into Paul's practices and interactions. We've read through it once, and before starting with verse 1, let me just give you a brief overview of the book, and then we'll work our way through the flow of the text. The book can be broken up into four main parts. First is Paul's introduction in verses 1 through 3, who wrote the book, who the book is addressed to, and his customary greeting. Second is Paul's prayer for Philemon in verses 4 through 7. Paul gives thanks for Philemon and his prayer is for continued growth and then an expression of his encouragement through Philemon. Third, Paul's plea to Philemon in verses 8 through 20. This is the bulk of the book. Paul's going to make an appeal to Philemon. But before he gives that appeal, he explains why he's making an appeal and not issuing a command. And he gives us the historical background to his appeal, which helps us reconstruct the entire background of the book. What's gone on to prompt the writing of this book? Then he gives his appeal, and with it, he gives a financial pledge to Philemon. And then fourth, Paul's farewell in verses 21 to 25. Paul concludes by stating his confidence in Philemon, telling Philemon his future plans, and sending greetings from some of uh, Philemon's friends. That's the book in overview, so let's begin with the introduction. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Apphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We see in verse 1, the author, pretty simple, the author, the Apostle Paul. The author, the Apostle Paul. 
Paul begins with a greeting that follows his customary pattern. He identifies himself, who he is. He identifies his audience, who he's writing to. And then he sends grace and peace. In verse 1, Paul identifies himself as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And that, together with verses 9 and 10 and verse 23, make it clear that Paul's not generally a prisoner for Christ, someone who's been imprisoned in the past or at various points in his life, but he's currently in prison. He also includes Timothy as something like an attendant author. But Timothy is clearly in the background as Paul uses first-person singulars, I, me, my, not our, throughout from verses 4 through 24. Timothy was probably known by Philemon, and so it was significant to Philemon that Timothy was there writing also. And Paul's mention of him here also elevates Timothy above the men mentioned in verse 23 gives Timothy a position of significance, very important man. Next, Paul identifies the recipients, the recipients in 1b to verse 2. In the second part of verse 1, Paul identifies the main recipient, Philemon, the main recipient, Philemon. He calls Philemon our beloved fellow worker. Immediately, you see the honor that Paul shows Philemon, calling him beloved and also identifying him as a fellow worker. He's not a nobody. He is beloved. He's dear and precious to Paul, and he is a fellow worker, a fellow minister. Next, we have number two, secondary recipients, Apphia, Archippus, and the local church. Apphia, Archippus, and the local church. These additions, like Timothy, are totally dropped out of view for the rest of the book. The yous throughout the book are singular. They're you, Philemon, not you guys. The only exceptions to that are in verse 21 and 25. And that makes it clear that Paul is speaking to Philemon. But... In mentioning Apphia, Archippus, and the local church in general, Paul makes his address to Philemon semi-public. Paul grants Apphia and Archippus and anyone in their church the right to read and examine this letter. After all, it is addressed to them. And that brings the matter addressed in the letter into the light. It's a public discussion. It's not private between two people only, but there's an audience. And Paul does that for Philemon's sake and also for the rest of the church's sake. You can imagine, if you followed what's gone on in this book, you can imagine the unchristian thoughts that Philemon might have toward his slave Onesimus. Onesimus has betrayed him. He's been wronged or Philemon has been wronged by him. As you read elsewhere also, it's very likely that Onesimus owed him money. He had wronged him, perhaps stolen from him, and run away. What would you think of such a slave? You would not think well. And so Paul writes to help Philemon recognize this matter is public. What I'm telling you is in front of other people. Keep that in mind. I don't know about you, but I always benefit from having other people around. 
it reminds us that we're not alone. We can't do whatever we want. And when we are alone, we tend to do whatever we want, which usually isn't good. And so it's wonderful that Paul brings in other people to remind Philemon, hey, the whole church is listening. The whole church is watching. Listen to what I say in that light. So Paul makes this discussion just public enough that Philemon's not facing it alone. He has other people with him. Also, it's probable that the whole church knew who Philemon was. I'm sorry, who, that the whole church knew who Onesimus was. And so what do you think they thought about Onesimus, this guy who had betrayed and wronged Philemon? They probably thought ill of him. And so bringing the whole church into the audience makes it clear, hey, when Onesimus walks back into the church, you guys welcome him. Welcome him with open arms. Then Paul gives his customary greeting in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Next in verses 4 through 7, Paul gives thanks and praise for Philemon. Notice as I read Paul's prayer that everything Paul says in this section is positive toward Philemon. It's all positive. Beginning in verse 4. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. In this prayer, we see first Paul's gratitude for Philemon, for, I'm sorry, his gratitude for Philemon's love and faith. Paul's gratitude for Philemon's love and faith. He thanks God for him in verse four, and he's heard of Philemon's love and faith toward Christ and all the saints, verse five. This paints Philemon in a totally positive light. Paul's way of speaking also makes it clear that although he knows Philemon personally, he calls him beloved, they haven't been around each other at least for some time because everything that he's giving thanks for is secondhand. It's what he's heard about Philemon, not his direct interaction with Philemon. So first is Paul's gratitude for Philemon's love and faith. Second is an exhortation toward full maturity. An exhortation toward full maturity. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, I need to clarify something in this that might be a little uh, easy to misunderstand in the ESV. The ESV translates the phrase, the sharing of your faith. That's probably not what you're thinking. In the American church today, I think just about everyone, if they hear the phrase, share your faith, they think of evangelism, outreach. Well, the word for sharing is koinonia. That's a word many of you know. It means fellowship. It's the fellowship of your faith. So it is sharing your faith, but it's sharing your faith with other believers. It's not a witnessing. It is a communion that we have together. The idea is sharing your faith with other believers, 
not evangelism. Not in this verse anyway. So the sharing of your faith here is the fellowship of your faith as the legacy standard and New American standard have it. Paul's prayer and exhortation is that the fellowship of Philemon's faith would become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. He's pointing Philemon toward full maturity. Paul wants the fellowship that Philemon has with all the saints to grow and increase so that it's effective for every good thing God has given us. And then the last part of his prayer is C, the encouragement for or encouragement for genuine ministry or from genuine ministry. Encouragement for genuine ministry. Verse 7. Paul says that he's received much joy and comfort for Philemon because the heart of the saints have been refreshed through Philemon. I find this pretty remarkable and a point of application for us. An encouragement. Philemon's no bigwig. He's well-to-do. He has a house large enough for the church to meet in. He has a slave, which indicates at least some prosperity. But he's no bigwig. He's not an elder. He's not a deacon. Apparently, he's not even a teacher. So is he insignificant? No big deal. It doesn't matter what he does. I'm so encouraged by the fact that Paul says... I have derived much joy and comfort from your love. And then you get the picture, oh, Philemon must have done something really nice for Paul. No. What did Philemon do? The hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you. So Paul's off in prison hundreds of miles away, and he is saying, Philemon, you have brought me much comfort and joy. Not because of what you did for me directly, but because of what I've heard and seen you do for other people. I think you'll agree that that's a positive and encouraging prayer. It's plain that Philemon is a noble believer. He's a man of faith and love. He's a blessing to the believers around him. You don't find any correction couched in his prayer just thankfulness to God for all that God has done in Philemon's life and a prayer that God would do so even more. And we find in it an encouragement that we can be faithful in whatever small task God has given us. Who knows where it will go? Maybe it will encourage the Apostle Paul. That brings us to the heart of the epistle, Paul's appeal in verses 8 through 20. Verses 8 through 20. Now, let's start with the explanation of his appeal at verses 8 and 9. He's going to get to his appeal, but it takes him quite a while to warm up. Verses 8 and 9. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. The first part of the explanation is that Paul could issue a command to Philemon. He could issue a command to Philemon, but he chooses to appeal to Philemon. He could issue a command. He chooses to appeal. Paul explains that he has the boldness to issue commands, and he also has the authority to issue commands. Some of you young children are bold enough to issue commands. You just don't have any authority to issue them. You've tried that with your older brother or sister, and it hasn't worked. 
Others of you have the authority to issue commands but lack the boldness. And so you beg your students or your children to do something. And you have the authority to just tell them what to do. But Paul says, I've got the authority, I've got the boldness, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. He says instead that he will appeal to Philemon. For love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Here he says, I prefer to appeal to you. In verse 14, he says, I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. I think a lot can be learned from that, but in brief, we see that Paul's interest is not just that the fitting or right thing is done, but that the fitting and right thing is done for the right reasons, with the right motive, and to the right effect. We too, in whatever positions of authority we have, we need to consider not just whether we have enough boldness to issue a command, but whether at times an appeal would be more productive. We'll come back to that idea in a few verses. Let's consider now the background to his appeal in verses 10 through 16. 10 through 16. Here we begin to piece together the circumstances that led up to this letter. Verse 10. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant or slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, while Paul is in prison, he meets a man named Onesimus. And this man comes to faith in the Lord Jesus. Paul learns Onesimus is a slave and he'd been a useless slave to his master, Philemon. He had apparently run away or failed to return on a mission he'd been sent on and the, or the, a mission that he'd been given. But now Onesimus has become useful. Having come to Christ, he's transformed into a new person and all of a sudden, Mr. Useless becomes useful. And Paul sends him back to his master. Now, we'll see more detail later, but that's good enough for now. Back to Paul's appeal to Philemon. Now we learn the subject of his appeal. Verse 10, his appeal is regarding Onesimus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. Of course, Philemon knows Onesimus. It's his slave after all. And he has some pretty strong feelings about him. Philemon knows the first part, that Onesimus was formerly useless. But Paul gives Philemon some new information, which probably was shocking. 
that Onesimus has become useful in verse 11. I think that probably came as a shock to Philemon. In verse 18, we learn Onesimus had caused harm to Philemon, and he was likely indebted to Philemon beyond his slavery. Yet through the grace of our Lord, Onesimus had become useful. Let me pause here and say to everyone here, you may have been useless up to this point in your life. You may be like Onesimus. What have you done? You've been useless. You've wasted your time, your money, your talents. You may have a life similar to Onesimus's, no better than a runaway pilfering slave. God can redeem you and he can make you into something that is useful. If you will come to him in faith, he can transform you if you bow to him as your master. So Paul's sending Onesimus back to his earthly master, Philemon. But very importantly, he says he is doing it, sending his own heart. And he says, I would have been glad to keep him with me. So Paul's sending him back, though he wanted him to, to stay. And this is really important because Philemon probably would have been mortified to have his slave come back with a note from the Apostle Paul. Go back home. Can you imagine what Philemon would have been thinking? Oh, great. What has he done now? What did he do to the Apostle Paul? Now I'm shamed in front of the Apostle's presence. Not at all. Paul makes it clear that he genuinely benefited from Onesimus's service. Paul wanted to keep Onesimus. He loved him so dearly. He was so useful to him. Paul wanted him to stay. Paul further explains that he's sending Onesimus back directly rather than waiting for some sort of response from Philemon. Why? Why not send a note saying, hey, I'd like to keep Onesimus, is that okay with you? And Paul explains why, because he wants to avoid Philemon having to do it out of compulsion. He doesn't want him to be forced to do it. He wants him to do it freely. What a significant difference. He wants to avoid that compulsion. His appeal, this is number two, his appeal avoids compulsion for Philemon's benefit. It avoids compulsion for Philemon's benefit. Not because Paul's a coward, but because it's going to benefit Philemon. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. At the heart of Paul making an appeal, rather than issuing a command, is Paul's desire for Philemon's goodness to shine through as the free expression of his heart and not just something that he was made to do. When you say to your son, empty the trash, and he empties the trash, you receive the benefit of having the trash emptied. Your son's goodness is seen in his obedience to empty the trash, but what remains unknown is, why did he do it? Was your son's goodness done out of his own accord or was it done under compulsion? Would he have done this good deed if you hadn't compelled him to do it? Now, there's nothing wrong with compelling someone to do it. 
provided it's a good thing and you have the authority to do so, but there's something better than that compulsion. It's the doing of that good deed from the freedom of your own heart because it's what you want to do. It's what you desire to do. John Piper's spoken of this in so many different ways. Appreciate him in that. Uh, But the simple picture of bringing your wife flowers on your anniversary and you say, I I got these flowers for you, happy anniversary. And she said, why did you do it? And it will never go over to say, it was my duty. It was our anniversary. I had to. I had no other. I was compelled. Society tells me I'm a bad husband if I don't. So here they are categorically different for you to say it's what my heart desired I love you and wanted to give you a precious gift to show you that love what we do out of the freedom of our heart is better than what is done under compulsion that's not to say that what is compelled is always bad one though is better Paul's desire is that Philemon's goodness is seen in his free choice of doing this not that he's compelled to do it by the apostle. Now, after all that, we still don't know what the appeal is. What's his appeal? We saw in verse 9, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. And we saw in verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, but what is the appeal? Let's look at that now. The statement of his appeal in verses 17 through 20. Verse 17, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. This is Paul's appeal. Receive Onesimus back as you would receive me. Receive Onesimus back as you would receive me. In a word, Paul wants Philemon to welcome Onesimus back. Now, such restoration requires forgiveness. And Paul doesn't take that lightly. This isn't a, oh, it doesn't matter. Oh, it's no big deal. No, it is a big deal. It does matter, and I'm still going to do it. It requires real forgiveness, or there will be no restoration. Now, I find the next two verses the most remarkable in the book, and they do require some explanation. Verses 18 and 19. First, Paul issues a pledge, and this is his pledge. Charge his debt to my account, I will repay it. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Now, at first glance, you could read this statement as somewhat manipulative, Paul is on the one hand saying, yeah, charge that to my account. Maybe he means that in an offhanded way. Charge me for that. But he doesn't mean it at all. Then on the other hand, he reminds Philemon, oh yeah, Philemon, don't forget, you owe me even your own life. 
all while saying on the surface, he won't remind Philemon that he owes him his life. But I don't think Paul is manipulative in the least. He's perfectly honest and straightforward. Paul means what he says, and what he says is truly remarkable. If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Now, Paul knows Onesimus has been useless. And he's likely stolen from Philemon or borrowed and not paid it back. That's the if he owes you anything part. In addition, there's the if he's wronged you at all. Think a runaway slave has wronged his master at all? That speaks of the wrongs done uh, that have done material damage to Philemon. Imagine what a worthless slave, what harm a worthless slave could do to his master. Failure to fulfill a contract. Hey, Onesimus, I want you to take these goods over to such and such a town and deliver them. And instead of delivering them, he bolts with them. Now Philemon is thought ill of by the people he promised those goods to, and he's out those goods, and he's out Philemon. Sorry, Onesimus. How about slander and defamation? What harm could a slave do if he slandered and defamed his master? And the clear harm suffered by the absence of the slave. For how long was he gone? We don't know. Paul takes a look at all of that that Onesimus has done, and he says both the directly financial obligations, if he owes you anything, and the material damages, if he's wronged you in any way, take all of that, and I want you to charge it to my account. Paul means this literally. Philemon, take out a sheet of paper, and I want you to write down on it, pen and ink, all that Onesimus owes you. Every time he borrowed from you and didn't pay it back, every time he wronged you and did you harm, write it down. And then at the top of that sheet, I want you to write down Paul's account. It's all now on Paul's name and not Onesimus's. This is why in the middle of a very personal letter, you see in verse 19 such stark formal language. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Paul pins these words with his own hand, serving as a legally binding pledge, like our signature today. I will pay this back. Now, as remarkable as that is, it's a shadow of the reality of the cross of Christ. Paul knows who he's imitating when he does this. Paul didn't make this up. He learned it from his own master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells Philemon, take all the debt that Onesimus has and put it on my account. Write it down on my account. Put my name on it. And he learned that because on the cross, that's exactly what God, Christ, did with us. So that he said to the Father, take down Jeremy's debt, take down Daniel's debt, take down the debt of all who would trust in Christ and write it down on a sheet of paper. 
And at the top of that piece of paper, you write Christ's debt. And Christ paid it off on the cross. He said, Father, write down the list of your sins, all the sins you've committed since the day you were born. Write down every wrong you have done, every failure, every crime. And at the top of my, that list, write my name, Christ's debt. And on the cross, amen, that debt was paid in full. So Paul tells Philemon, take what Onesimus owes you and charge that all to my account. So what do we make of the last line in verse 19? To say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Now, most agree that the reference here, or this would reference the fact that Paul converted Philemon. It makes a lot of sense. You owe me your own self in the sense that you were dead in your trespasses. I brought you the gospel. There's a sense in which you owe me your life. You'd be dead in your sins if it wasn't for me. But what do we make of this? To say nothing of your owing me even your own self. On the surface, it appears self-contradictory. I won't mention that you owe me yourself. What did I just mention? I just mentioned that you owe me your own self. So what do we make of this? A lot of interesting comments and commentaries I'd advise you to avoid. I don't think Paul's speech is crooked at all. In the context of a legally binding pledge to pay Onesimus' debt, what Paul is stating plainly is, I'm not going to account for the fact that you owe me your own life. I'm not going to say anything about the fact that you owe me your life in this pledge. That's all he's saying. I won't write at the bottom of that list, by the way, Philemon owes me his life, so really it's all a wash. I'm not going to mention it. I'm not going to speak of it. So when he says, I won't mention it, not to mention or not to say nothing of, he's not saying that literally, I'm not going to say anything about it. He's saying, I'm not going to say anything about it in this debt, in this contract that we have. My pledge to you will not be nullified by the fact that you owe me even your own life. I literally mean I will repay all the debt. What a pledge by Paul. Whatever Onesimus owes, I will repay it. And then that leads to Paul's affirmation. Number three, Paul's affirmation. Philemon's consent would truly bless Paul. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. This harkens back to the end of Paul's prayer that Philemon has refreshed the hearts of the saints. Now Paul says, I really do want you to benefit me, brother. Do this thing for me. Do this good for me. It will refresh my heart. Do to me what you have done to others and refresh my heart. And in asking this, Paul acknowledges that what he is asking for would give Paul real benefit. This, this is not like a, a casual kind of a exchange. Paul is saying, I want this real benefit from you. What, what benefit? Well, think, think about it. Philemon owns Onesimus legally. 
Onesimus belongs to Philemon. Does Philemon have to accept this offer that Paul's going to pay off his debt? No. And where is Paul at this time? He's in prison, which generally makes it harder to earn money. So Paul's promise that I'm going to repay his debt, Philemon doesn't know when that's going to happen. Paul doesn't say by when. And Philemon has every right to say, Paul, stay out of this. It's none of your business. This is my slave. I'm going to do to him what I want. And legally, we know biblically from other passages about slaves and masters, Philemon would have had every right to imprison him, to beat him, or even put him to death. Doesn't mean that it's right, but he would have had the legal right to do so. So who is this Paul butting into the middle of it? And so Paul says, I want you to do this real benefit for me. Receive him as you would receive me. Don't treat him according to what his deeds deserve. Treat him according to the gospel. Treat him according to the grace that we've received in Christ. Receive him as you would receive me. And by doing that, Philemon would agree to the pledge. I will accept your pledge, Paul, that you'll pay it off. And I will not hold Philemon responsible for it. Philemon's bill is torn up. He owes, I'm sorry, Onesimus's bill is torn up. He owes Philemon nothing. Now Onesimus is free in regard to that debt. And that will free him up for future service. And that leads finally to our conclusion, 21 to 25. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. And at the same time also prepare me a lodging for I hope that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul starts his conclusion with the statement of confidence. Verse 21, confidence in Philemon, that Philemon will follow Paul's appeal. He's, again, not manipulating Philemon. He's saying, Philemon, I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not trying to compel you. I'm confident you're going to do this. And that's a real encouragement because, remember, there's an audience. There are other people around. And so Paul's saying, clarifying, I really believe, I anticipate that you're going to do what I'm appealing for you to do. I'm not saying this because I'm trying to make you do it. I'm confident you're going to do it, and more. I know you're going to do even more than what I say. Further, Paul states his hope for reunion. In verse 22, Paul explains, prepare a lodging. And this is a command, by the way. It's interesting. Earlier he says, I'm going to appeal to you and not command. Verse 22 is a straight command. Philemon, prepare me a lodging. As an apostle, I have the authority and the boldness to tell you to get a lodging ready for me. Don't know when I'm going to be there. It's on you to make sure there's a house ready when I arrive. And he has the authority to do that. So he's not scared to make the command. 
He does it. And the reason he wants him to prepare that is he says, I hope that through your prayers, I'll be graciously given to you. He doesn't know that. It's his hope. It's his expectation. That's what he's anticipating the Lord's going to do. You can uh, read something similar in Philippians where he says, I don't know what's going to happen if I'm going to die and depart and be with Christ or if I'm going to remain on for a while more, but I'm confident because it's necessary for you. I'm going to remain and I will be delivered. That's his expectation. He has a hope for reunion. And then that leads to the greetings from friends. The greetings from friends. We don't have time to study each of these in in any detail. I've given you the references so you can do that study on your own. But I find it remarkable at the end of a book, kind of looks like a throwaway verse. Yeah, what are you going to get out of that verse? It's a bunch of names. I can't pronounce half of them anyway. We have Epaphras, we have Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, and each tells their own story. Epaphras, he says, is a fellow prisoner. Fellow prisoner, which means he too was in prison, likely alongside of Paul, if not nearby. What's fascinating about that is if you look at Colossians, Epaphras is also mentioned, and he's not a prisoner there. Which tells you, These guys are preaching the gospel and they're going in and out of prison. He wasn't in prison. Now, after some time, he is in prison. Mark, what a story Mark is, started out so well. I guess not, because at the end of Mark, he's the author. He is the young man who runs away when Christ is arrested and he runs away and someone grabs his robe and he's so scared. He runs away without his robe. Great shame. He writes that about himself, apparently. There's no other reason. Why, why put that in there? He's acknowledging how shameful he was. But then he's Paul's and Barnabas's companion. <sighs> but then he abandons them and goes back home when he gets homesick. And Paul and Barnabas fight over whether or not he should go with them again. But here, Mark is with Paul. He's sending greetings to Philemon. And later on, we find that Mark is with him again and again. And Paul says, receive him. He's useful to me for ministry. And Mark is redeemed and restored throughout his life. Aristarchus, one of the Thessalonians, or at least from the uh, Macedonian region. And then Demas, a sad story who is Paul's companion here and also in Colossians 4. But then we know Demas fell in love with the world. And at the end of Paul's life, Demas abandons Paul. And for all we can tell, abandons the Lord. And then Luke, the author of Luke and Acts, one of Paul's faithful companions and one of the few men with Paul at the end of his life. Every one of them tells a unique story of God's grace. This is the book of Philemon. Paul's appeal for Philemon to receive Onesimus, to receive him back, to grant him forgiveness. And what a picture it is of the Lord's forgiveness and restoration of each one of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you praise for this account of Paul, of Philemon, and of Onesimus, and so many other characters. We thank you that Paul's In Paul's wisdom, he saw the need to make things right between Onesimus and Philemon. 
that he was not ashamed to give Philemon commands. He was not ashamed to give Onesimus the truth. We praise you that Onesimus received the gospel, was freed from his sin, and whether or not he remained a slave or not is irrelevant to us because we know he was a slave to Christ. He was a free man in the Lord. And we thank you for Philemon and the testimony of his love and faith, how he refreshed the hearts of the saints. And even that small act of serving the saints proved to be a benefit of great encouragement and joy to the Apostle Paul, whether or not Philemon even knew it. We thank you for this testimony and we ask that you would help us to live our lives in such a way ready to be restored with those who have wronged us, ready to, be, to forgive and to come back to receive those who come to us in confession of their sin. We pray that that heart of forgiveness would be among each one of us, recognizing that it is the very heart that you had towards us when we came to you in faith. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.